This is Our American Stories, and our team is in love with another team called NIFTY, which stands for the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. These guys bring entrepreneurship classes and summer boot camps to economically disadvantaged areas where kids may have never thought about entrepreneurship before as an avenue for their future. And they've reached over 500,000 students thus far. Our own Alex Cortez traveled to St. Louis to meet with one of the teachers who teaches this entrepreneurship class, Obino Coley. Let's take a listen to his report. Where'd you grow up? I was born in Jamaica. Jamaica? Yeah, I was born in Jamaica, yep. Born in Jamaica. I came here when I was like four. Why did your parents move here? Always opportunities, man. This is the, the, the best country, the greatest country in the world, man. They what was their, What was life like for them in Jamaica first? Uh, farming. We, we stayed like, you know, Jamaica. A lot, when you say Jamaica, a lot of people think about like the, like the, the tourism parts of it. But there's like the actual, the city part and the country part of it. So we're actually from the country. Okay, like in high in the mountains part of Jamaica. So it's like farming and stuff like that. Was your dad struggling or was it just a tough life? Um, kind of, this yeah, is a actually, really grinding life and I, I think there might be more actually, in America. Or what? Actually, my dad, like I, I remember my dad, he when I was in high school, he was learning to read. Like He didn't go to school. Like It was like one of those situations where you just stayed around the farm and worked. You know, you didn't really go to school, so he didn't. He didn't know how to read until you know I was in high school, and I just remember that. Why did he learn how to read? Why he learned? I guess is I guess something he just wanted to do against pers- personal goals. He never said it was. You know, I I wouldn't be surprised if it's. You know, my kids are learning this now. I want to um, almost say you guys inspired him to do it. Nah, he wasn't one of those type of fathers, man. <laughs> nah, he didn't really express his feelings or anything like that. I just knew, like I I remember him. He used to work. Uh, he used to work at the hospital, third shift. And he used to like do custodial work at the hospital, and I re- I just remember growing up we had to me and my little brother had to wake him up to like go from go to work, and he'd be so upset, so mad that he had to go do this job every night, and he used to get mad at the first person he sees. So we used to like throw pillows at him and stuff like that. So when he woke up, he wouldn't see nobody. You know, he just so I just remember like I didn't I just knew I didn't want you know that type of life, and he always said education was important. Obino would get that education. But he also got something else that he didn't expect. So I graduated in 2002 from college with a bachelor's in business management in May. So I had my first baby that April. Then I had my second kid um, that December. So I had like so I like like one one so of for the, with different women. Well, two different with yeah. different women. And and the cool thing about me is like the second day of school, I, I do a two day program. Uh, like uh, I tell kids everything how I got from from the start to finish. Wow! And a lot of kids they look at me and they don't know that you know I, I had two baby mamas. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's the term they like to use. But I also show them how I turned my life around from that. How I use that to motivate me that I didn't have three baby mamas. You know, yeah. sometimes we, we 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 messed up and we keep messing up. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with making a mistake. But are you gonna keep on making the same mistake over yeah. and over again? Sex is something that's kind of normalized now. But I just try to tell them the, like the, the the latter part of the story to it, and and the good thing is I understand how they feel because yeah. because you know it's not like I read in the book because I was in the <laughs> same place in the same you know so I think that's one of the reasons I have a good relationship with kids because I'm not a because I'm I'm not a stranger to them you know they know my story so it makes teaching a lot easier when you're not just a title to them when they, you know you're like a person and now I could I could get in their face I could. I could be gruff with them, you know, because I have that relationship now yeah. with them. Don't, and most teachers 
You cannot, you can't teach off a title. You have to teach off a relationship. At the end of the day, you mentioned, um, you know, learning from that after having two and, and not having become three. What did you learn, or what did you change in your life? Kind of just bring me to that that moment, if there was a single moment, or you know, oh, de- that changed things around. Definitely, or- I remember it was two thousand five. Was Christmas? It was Christmas. Having these two kids, and you can't. You don't, you know, you don't have a job. You don't have, you don't have no money to get no Christmas gift. And you know, Christmas is not about stuff like that. You know, but at the same time, you know, as a man, not being able to, you know, support my kids and all that stuff. And and at that time, I was I was in Chicago living with my mother. Being back 25 years old in in your house with your mother, you got a you got a uh, a bachelor's degree, but you know, it was still hard. It was, it was still hard trying to find work at that time. And I just remember spiritually, like, I knew what the problem was because my heart was in the wrong place. Because, you know, I grew up in a church, but then ever since I graduated high school, I like my life went in a total different direction. And I just knew what it was, man. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, you have one of those moments, you get on your knees, you tell God, you bring me out of this. I, I turned my life around. Uh, but this time, I actually, I actually kept my promise, man. I actually kept my promise. And I remember I got baptized at New Year's Eve. I've never been baptized or nothing like that. Actually, I got baptized at midnight. So I wanted to set up where I went down in 2005, and I came up in 2006. <laughs> and, that's how, and that's how I got baptized. Is that a common thing, or did you have nah, that special set up? I just had something I just wanted to do. That's why it just came to me. The pastor agreed? Yeah. <laughs> so I got baptized, uh, went down in 2005, came up in 2006, man. Yep, that was, that's, that's how I went. And when that happened, you know, I was still kind of lost. And if I if I'd never heard the word of God before in my life, he told me to do two things. He was like, because I, I stopped going to church. He was like, start going to church and start paying your tithes. And those are two things I heard him say. And I knew it was him because, one, I tell kids, it's like, it, it never, when it, when it came from me, because I didn't, I had no intentions on going to church. Sundays was my day to watch football all day long. And I've never paid my tithes. And another thing I tell kids is that, like, when I didn't do it, I felt funny inside. You know what I'm saying? I wow. felt that conviction inside. So I knew it was God. And uh, that's how I got into teaching. So one day my pastor asked me to teach Sunday school. And at that age, I've never taught before in my life. I had no desire. My wife was a teacher. And, you know, and I was working. I was more like working like sales jobs, you know, random collections, sales. That was my background. And uh, I started teaching Sunday school. And I remember the change in the dynamics of our relationship when I became a teacher in Sunday school. You know, our uh, our little high and by you know conversations went to deeper conversations when I became a teacher. And you're I saying just you appreciated your wife's work more. Is that what you're saying? Say it again. Are you saying that you appreciate? Oh your wife's man, work more? yes. I yeah. remember one time. I I remember my first day teaching, and I came home and I just felt I fell out. I was so exhausted from teaching all day, talking all day. I had to get used to it. And I used to tell my wife, you don't do nothing but stand up there and yell at kids. That's all you do. But man. And when we come back, more Robino Coley's story, a teacher at Normandy High School in St. Louis, Missouri, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Alex's conversation with Obino Coley, who teaches a high school entrepreneurship class with a curriculum that's provided by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Let's return to Obino and Alex's talk. At this point, Obino's just getting into teaching, and he has no idea what subject he wants to teach. It's his first day student teaching at McClure North High School in the St. Louis area, and a teacher there named Jake Lipinski was teaching this entrepreneurship class, and it also happened to be the very day he was having his first baby. And Jake decided to hand Obino a book that just said entrepreneurship on it and said, here you go, teach this class. And he left for the hospital without any more guidance, and Obino ate it up. Like, man, my first job I'm getting, I'm bringing this with me. So when I got hired on here three years ago, uh, the first year, uh, so this is Normandy. So this is Normandy. This is Normandy Schools Collaborative. Normandy right now is the only unaccredited high school in the state of Missouri. The only. The only high school that's unaccredited. They're unaccredited because their student achievement was so abysmal. It was frequent for teachers not to show up to class and without consequence. So the state took over the school that was also labeled the most dangerous school in St. Louis. And that had consequences. Uh, so basically what that means is kids that could basically, you know, you, you go to the school that you live around. Whatever school district you fall is where you go to. But us being unaccredited, meaning kids has a, since the school district is unaccredited, kids has a right to, to go to different schools. Mm-hmm. And we have to pay for them. Yep. Transportation. Yep. So my first year here, I think on the state of Missouri, it's like a scale, like a, it's like a hundred and 40 points on that scale, and we had 12 points out of 140. Last year, I think we had like 80 points. So between those three years, this is just as, and, and what they did was, so they went from Normandy, Normandy School District to Normandy Schools Collaborative. So they changed, they fired, because once you change the school district, because the problem in education is like tenureship. It's hard to get rid of those, te- those, those teachers that's been there, you know, 20 years, because it's hard to get them, you know, you got the union and all that. So when they changed the, I don't know if it's a smart thing they did, so when they changed the school district, everybody had to reapply for their job. So this is like a whole brand new school district. So everybody lasts tenureship, the tenureship. So they fired a bunch of people, and I was, I was one of the ones they kind of hired, like the kind of fresh blood to bring in the school district. Because when the state took over three years ago, that's what, that's what they game plan, get rid of Because they, they did their homework and figured, why is the school failing? So they figured that out. They scrapped the whole curriculum. It was just, it was just bare, bare necessities. Uh, English, math, reading, no honors courses, no AP courses, nothing. I think my first year we just taught personal finance and computer apps, and that was it. Um, my second year we kind of brought back some of the courses, and I, and I was like, well, I want to I introduce this entrepreneurship piece. And, you know, the cool thing about our administration is there are totally four kids, you know. I didn't have to turn no long plan or anything like that. He loved it. And, and so this is the second year having his entrepreneurship course here. Why does he love it? Because um, entrepreneurship, to be an entrepreneur, world of business, it encompasses so many other things you need to have. The math skills, the reading skills, the speaking skills, the thinking skills, the critical thinking. So... The whole curriculum encompasses everything. Obino was still a relatively new teacher, and I was curious how he dealt with something that can affect 
every type of class. Some teachers I've heard say, like, you either gain your students or you lose your students on your first day. Just how your, your students walk into your classroom, <clears throat> they see you and they're able to say, I'm going to take this teacher seriously or not. I think, I think, uh, I think as far as the, the behavior management is definitely set the first couple of days. Uh, as far as who's going to be in charge of that classroom. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's definitely set. I think sometimes, as uh, far as, like, getting involved in the content, it might, t- some people catch it early, some people catch it late, mm-hmm. but you can always get the involvement of coming. But once you lose your classroom, uh, once you haven't set those expectations, whether it's cool to walk in with, a, with, with your cell phone on, or it's cool to talk while I'm talking, if you let those behavior go, it's hard for you to, to reset it. And I learned that my my first year here. And even like even now, what I was just. What mistakes did you make your first year? Um, I, I would say being too nice. I I I would say not being as firm as I need mm-hmm. to be the first couple of days, just so you could just save yourself time and energy on the back end. Because a lot of behaviors, you can save yourself. You know what I'm saying? As far as but there's two things I've learned as a teacher that you control 100%. There's two things. You know those two things? Though? What no. do you think? Take it, what do you think the two things you are? As a teacher, there's two things you control with uttermost power and ruthlessness and totalitarian authority. I don't know. Your you know preparation I mean? and your attitude? Nah, no. Nah, right. <laughs> Who walks in your classroom okay. and where they sit. And that's it. That's it. That's the only two things you control. Who walks in your classroom and where they sit in your classroom. And you have to control those two things. Because a kid might come in my classroom jumping and playing, I tell him to leave. And what I'm doing, I'm setting the tone as he's walking in my classroom. And, it, and each classroom is different, you know what I'm saying? And the teachers that I, that I hear about cell phones, I always complain about cell phones, is do you let them walk in the classroom with a cell phone? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the problem. Because now... Now you got to deal with that cell phone problem five minutes into class. Yeah. But if you stop it at the door, you don't have to worry about it. You know what I'm saying? You're saying who comes in your class? Like, do you kick them out of the class? Ooh, you're going to say, like, you're no, not going to be a minor child? No, I give them a choice. Okay. Either you can put your cell phone away or you can keep it out. But if you put it away, you're more than welcome to come in. If you keep it out, you got to stay in the hallway. But you can always come in when you're ready to pull it out. So you don't, it, it, you don't really have to kick kids out. You just give them a choice. Yeah. Okay. You know, and, and that's what it is. And most kids, most kids will make the right choice. Inside almost all of us, even these, the most challenging students, we want to be successful. As the owner of Johnsonville Sausage once told me, no one wakes up in the morning wanting to fail, except for a few cuckoo birds. On to Mr. Coley's entrepreneurship class. How does he make it come to life? The key thing is being a teacher, you have to link it to their, to their understanding. So I might talk about Jay Z, mm-hmm. Birdman, and I'm not gonna talk about Martha Stewart. You know, they might, you know, and then I, I might talk about starting a record label, or start, you know, you know, whatever it may be, you know, businesses. Even like even even with the illegal drug trade, that's still a business. Oh yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's still the same concepts of a business. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? When we're talking about you know market shares, you know, we use Apple and Android a lot. You know what I'm saying? And we talk about market shares and products. That's the same concept when it comes to drug dealers and all that and all that and all those type of things. Because instead of market share, you're talking about city blocks. 
You know what I'm saying? When, yeah. when we see people killing other city blocks, they trying to they trying to capture that block to increase their market mm-hmm. share so they can sell their product. So it's all the same concept. See, my goal is to, is to take a kid that has the same that has the 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 the, the who dare to have the the audacity to, to to go into a business where you could get killed, spend the rest of your life in jail, and still be brave enough to do it, to take that same kid and take that same energy, but using it in a positive way. You know, you could you could create a business. You you could because there's there's a, there's a lot of intangible things that you know uh, growing up in an environment like this gives you that you don't get growing up in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a certain grit and rigor you develop in streetwise and, and not taking no for an answer that these kids have that these other kids don't have. Yeah. You know? I like my kids are soft. Like my kids <laughs> they grow up man like my kids are you know, they couldn't survive in the environment because you know, it's like Skokie to them, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, they, they wouldn't make it in in the, in the urban district, you yeah. know. But these kids, they have, they have something like, you know, I like Jay-Z said, I got my MBA from Marcy Projects. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And that's the type of grit that they have. They just don't have the opportunity to use it in a positive way. And this class gives them the opportunity. Gives them the opportunity to start their very own business. Each student has to come up with their own business idea. And the final exam is their full written up business plan detailed with all the concepts they learned about in class. And if they're serious about their business, Mr. Coley will take it to another level with them, leveraging his connections and Nifty's connections to help them with it. Connections that can be virtually non-existent in an inner city where the greatest connection is the drug dealer. I tell I am not wasting adults' time. You know, you have to be serious. If you're going to take this course, and you, if you just want to take it to a grade, like I, I have a like a, a Excel document, and it's two columns. Bring it to life, taking it for a grade. And I ask you, do you want to bring this to life, or you just want to take it for a grade? And they tell me, I just want to take it for a grade, and I check that box. And some people say, oh, I want to bring it to life, and I check that box. Bring it to life or take the grade. What a great way to put things. We just love this guy, Obino Coley. More on his story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Alex's conversation with Obino Coley, St. Louis teacher who teaches a high school entrepreneurship class with a curriculum that's provided by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And if you recall, he's the teacher of those two young boys who were going to New York City because they did so well under Obino's instruction, and that was Raheen and Damon. Let's take a listen. The business idea of Mr. Coley's two most serious students, Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney, who he calls by their last names, is what they've named the double backer packer. One backpack that's on your back and another that's on your chest, both connected by a shoulder strap and designed to more evenly distribute a bag's weight on your body, especially if you can't fit all of your stuff into one bag. 
Uh, how did they come up with the name? Do you remember the process of? Did man, they have other names? Man, he. I, I remember the day he came and said the double backer packer. Man, I said, man, I wanted to kick him out, man, because it was <laughs> it was a it was a ridiculous idea I ever heard, man. But then I thought about the snuggie, man. I said, oh man, the snuggie. You know what the snuggie is, yeah, right? Yeah. The snuggie has grossed over two hundred million dollars, man. Believe it or not, man. And knowing that, I was like, no, I, I didn't, I didn't see it, like how I see it now when he first said it. I'm like, man, that make no sense, man. Okay, but that's the beautiful thing about it. he believed in it. And that's all it takes. They've made it all the way to the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's national pitch competition in New York City. And that has a grand prize of $25,000 for high school students. What's been most rewarding for you in this job? These kids right here, man. Those kids. Because those kids probably are not entrepreneurs. You know, never really probably, you know, sat down and started thinking about ideas. Larry's kind of the brains behind the operation. And, like, that wasn't his first idea. He, he had, like, a different idea. He was, like, waterproof earbuds or whatever, something like that. And one day he came to me like, oh, I got an idea. The double backer packer. You know what I'm saying? Like, how you come up with it? And, it's, and it's, it's really the mindset of trying to change, especially our demographics. Quit being consumers all the time and be creators. All these apps that you're playing with, somebody created that and made millions of dollars. And they take those millions of dollars and they give back to their community. They give back to their university. You know, they give back to whatever they want to. So as African Americans, we need more entrepreneurs. We need more millionaires. So at the end of the day, we don't have to rely on the federal government. We can support our own selves. Obino's immigrant parents taught him how to take care of himself as they took care of themselves. I don't know if you've said thank you to your parents for all they've done for you and oh, definitely. this country, but you know, if your dad was, your, your mom was sitting here with us right now, what would you say to them? Uh, I would, my dad, always, I, actually I talk to him all the time, man. You know, dad, I would say thank you for having such a sucky job. And motivate me to to get an education because that was one that was one of the things I always said to myself. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, have a job like he had. I want to have a job that I enjoy coming yeah. to. Okay, he didn't have a job coming to man, so I I appreciate that. Uh, mom, my mom's a little bit different, man. I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell you a funny story about my mom. And one day I had to be in middle school. I had to be in middle school, and I. It was a Sunday because I had a Sunday. I have, remember having my Sunday clothes on. We went to a Target, and I had a clipper set at home, but I didn't have any guards that you put on the clippers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I remember I had a, like this back in the days we had we had pullovers. Pullovers were like the big old things, and I had so I had a Cleveland Browns pullover, and I remember was at, at Target, and I opened up the uh, the package, and I put the clipper guards in my pullover. And we walked out the store and security arrested me for stealing. And I, I, my mom my mom was so mad at me for stealing. And I was surprised and I thought she was going to whoop me. And she didn't whoop me, man. You know what she did? She sent you to prison. No, she didn't send me to prison, man. <laughs> What'd she do? She didn't talk to me, man. She didn't talk to me for like two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. But listen, she didn't talk to me. And to, 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 to not have my mother speak to me, be so utterly disgusted with me, that was a feeling 
I would, I would rather take a whooping to disappoint your mother like that. Wow. Uh, and I've never, and that was the last time I've ever stolen anything <laughs> in my life. So here's, the, so here's the funny story about it. So I was interviewing for a job at Aaron's. I interviewed a job, and I, you know, I actually walked off with the pencils. So I'm driving down the street, and I have the pen in my hand. I'm like, oh, I'm accident. I'm accident. Yeah. So I turn around. It's like I'm driving like way down the street. So I turn around, and the guy that I interviewed with, I said, oh, my bad. I took your pen on accident, and I gave it back to him. And I walked out. And I got the job, and like a month later, like, a, like maybe like six months into the job, but he asked me, do I know why I got the job? I'm like, nah, I know why I got the job. He said, because I knew you wouldn't steal from me. Because he took that pen and brought it back to me. That's awesome. And that's all because my mom didn't talk to me when I stole something. You know, and, that, and that's, a, that's a funny thing about life, man. Yeah. And you, you just never know what lessons you learn, you know, that, that helps you get certain places in life. And I needed that job, too, man, at that time. <laughs> so, you know. With the interview over, Obino graciously walked me out of the school into my car. I thought we would just be making some small talk on the way, so I wasn't recording. But he started telling me when we were walking about their school's fascinating program to get every kid in an internship experience out in the working world during high school in which they get academic credit for. And so I quickly pulled out my cell phone and started recording. We're trying to get more, like, say, in, in the marketing pathway. So those kids that like marketing, we'll get them a job in marketing. Yeah. So they get that experience. So, so when they graduate high school, they can say, I had three months working here. You know? And so in your off time, you are out there trying to find more places for these kids to work. Uh, man, I'm always thinking about these. I'd be in the shower thinking about these kids. <laughs> You had an idea, man. So it's all about the kids, man. Because at the end of the day, this is this is gonna make the world better. Even one less kid committing crimes, or one less kid committing a murder. Even in the knuckleheads, man. Like even these kids don't want to go. I was playing. I was playing kids in my. Okay. What's going on, man? I just had a kid. I just had a kid, and um. And uh, he had an ankle bracelet on. So you know, you know, you hear, you hear what's going on. Like he stole the car or whatever. And I knew, I just felt like my time was limited with him. And and one of the things I learned in life is how to change your life. Yeah. So the last time I saw him, I wrote on a piece of paper. I gave him my secret, man. I said, if you ever want to change uh, uh, your life, you have to change the words that you listen to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And one thing about me, when I, when, I, when I changed my life, I changed the words I listened to. That, and that meant I changed the music I listened to. I changed the people I hung around with. I changed the places that I go. And I wrote that down. I wrote that down on a sheet of paper and I gave it to him. And like two, three days later, his name's off my roster. And today in class, I'm like, what happened to Booker? Uh, he, got, he, went to, he, got, he got locked up. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I don't, I don't know how his story ends, but I can look in the mirror and say, I seen him, and I did everything I could to help him. You know, and most kids look at that kid, like, most people are like, I ain't helping him. I mean, he's, he's already going down that path. Yeah. That's not your job to, as a teacher to decide, you know, how, how his life ends up. It's like that, that little interaction you have with them. Did you, did, can you look in, your, in the mirror and say you did everything you could? You know what I'm saying? And I didn't know that was the last time I saw him, you know? But I just, that's just being a teacher. You know, every day you, you, you're in 80 kids' lives. You got 80 kids every day. Yeah. 
And, you know, I got my own five kids. But those moments, man, you have to say, did you do everything to help that kid while he was in your class? Because you never know. And what's great is you, even if he doesn't follow you in this moment, you put a thought in his head that he can go back to. Yeah. You know, five years from now, he can think about what you said and, yeah, and, and I, go back and to and it. And I wrote it down, and I remember him grabbing it, put it in his pocket. And, and those are those moments, man. And that might mean something, might not mean nothing. Yeah. No, but the point is, he can't, he can't say that he didn't have no adult he couldn't go to or couldn't ask about right. something. You know, that's, at the end of the day, that's all it is. And that's not all it is. What a great story. If this country had more teachers like Obino Coley, my goodness, what a difference. A difference maker, Normandy High School. He teaches entrepreneurship classes sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. What a story here on Our American Stories. American stories and on our show we love to tell stories of songs the story of songs we like to call it we've done give me shelter Jesus take the wheel Georgia on my mind there goes my life and today we're telling the story of over the rainbow the song is originally sung by Judy Garland in the 1939 film the Wizard of Oz it's so familiar that a few of us well we couldn't imagine a world without it the music Well, it was written by Harold Arlen, a Jewish writer, a man who wrote over 500 songs in his career, some of the great American songs and songbook creators from Tin Pan Alley and the great Broadway era. The lyrics of this ballad were written by E.Y. Yip Harburg, whose parents were Jewish immigrants from Russia. Here is the lyricist Harburg himself talking about his writing and singing the famous song let's take a listen i belong to a special tribe of what used to be called troubadours sometimes they were called minstrels now we're called songwriters who were not ashamed of a thing called romance motion humor and especially the english language we lived in a world that knew the difference between sentiment and sentimentality. We worked for, in our songs, a sort of a better world, a rainbow world. Now, my generation, unfortunately, never succeeded in creating that rainbow world, so we can't hand it down to you. But we could hand down our songs, which still hang on to hope, 
and laughter. So that in times of confusion like these, when all the world is a hopeless jumble and the raindrops tumble all around, heaven opens a magic lane. When purple clouds darken up the skyway, there's a lovely highway to be found leading from your window pane to a spot behind the sun just a step beyond the rain somewhere over the rainbow way up high there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby somewhere over the rainbow skies are blue and the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops that's where you'll find me somewhere over the rainbow bluebirds fly birds fly over that rainbow why then oh why can't I if any little bird can fly beyond the rainbow why oh why can't I and the song written during the Great Depression well, its intent was to point to better times, a place without trouble or depression. It's a song of hope. In fact, it will be the hope of Judy Garland for years to come after her performance in The Wizard of Oz. The first recording of the song was on October 7, 1938, on the MGM sound stages. It became Garland's signature song. This song became the aching and longing of Judy's life. Harold Arlen said that Judy was the one who felt most deeply about the song. Garland once wrote in a letter to Arlen, quote, As for my feelings toward Over the Rainbow, it's become part of my life. It's so symbolic of all my dreams and wishes that I'm sure that's why people sometimes get tears in their eyes when they hear it. Judy is not the only one who felt deeply about the song. Judy's daughter, Liza Minnelli, tells a story of her heartfelt fan, and how her mother handled the situation. Mama rarely, uh, and never around the kids, used profanity. But when she did use it, it was always funny, you know. And it, like, well, we, what happened was we were in someplace crazy, like Lake Tahoe, and we went into the ladies' room. There was an old drunk lady in there, and it was just, you know, with. <laughs> the sequin straps in one of those dames and um she said oh judy you're terrific you're judy the rainbow you gotta always remember the rainbow 
then when she went into one of the stalls, the lady knocked on the door. She said, yes. She said, do you never forget the rainbow. God, it's helped me through so many crises. And when Mama came back, then she went up to her. The lady went up to Mama and said, I just wanted to say hello. And Mama looked at her and said, hi. Right? Which made me start to giggle. Now, and she's going on and on and on about the rainbow and about this and that and what a dear little girl and how this, this, uh, And as we're going out, she had on this incredible long feathered boa somebody had given her as a present, which was way too big for her because she was tiny, you know. She came up to here on me. And um, the last thing that this lady said again was, don't forget the rainbow, Judy. And Mama turned and <laughs> threw the boa around herself and she said, how can I forget the rainbow? I've got rainbows up my ass. And that's, well, you know, at a certain point, you can just sort of get sick of the hectoring, but look at how it moved people. The song is only two minutes and 43 seconds, but in its own way, it's timeless, leaving its stamp on history. The song won an Oscar in 1939 for Best Original Song. The Recording Industry Association of America and the National Endowment for the Arts crowned it number one on the list of songs of the century. In March 2017, Garland's original rendition of the song was added to the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally and historically significant. And the American Film Institute ranked the song the greatest movie song of all time. Not bad. Well, we're going to close out with a song as it appears in the film. And we're going to pick things up in this story of a song here on Our American Stories. This is our American stories, the story of a song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Judy Garland's signature song, a song in every American's heart, every kid, the kid inside, every adult. Let's take a listen to the great, the immortal, Judy Garland. You know what Miss Gus said she was going to do to Toto? She says she now, was going to... Now, Dorothy, dear, stop imagining things. You always get yourself into a fret over nothing. Now, you just help us out today and find yourself a place where you won't get into any trouble. Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away, behind the moon, beyond the rain. Somewhere over the 
This is Our American Stories, the story of a song somewhere over the rainbow. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short handle shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. This is Our American Stories, and now Jesse Edwards brings us the story of a desk, unlike any story of a desk that you've ever heard before. August 24th. 1814 marks one of the darkest episodes in the War of 1812. On that day, British troops marched on Washington, burning public buildings, including the U.S. Capitol. Among the losses in the Capitol were the Senate chamber and all its contents. Reconstruction took until 1819, and when senators again took their seats in the rebuilt chamber, they occupied 48 new desks and chairs custom-made by Thomas Constantine, a New York cabinet maker. Constantine was paid $34 for each Senate desk and $46 for each chair. Today, all of Constantine's desks remain in use in the current Senate chamber, although his chairs have been replaced. As new states entered the Union, desks of similar design were ordered from other cabinet makers, although the four newest desks, those constructed for Alaska and Hawaii, were built in the Senate cabinet shop. There are noticeable differences in shape and dimension among the 100 desks. These result from the original semicircular arrangement in the old Senate chamber. A desk's shape reflected its position in the room. Aisle desks were narrow and angled, while the center was wider and square. If the oldest were arranged in the original layout, it is believed they would have formed a perfect semicircle. Many traditions pertaining to the Senate desks have evolved over the years, and each new class of senators that occupies them contributes to their heritage. Through careful documentation and diligent preservation, this rich legacy will be maintained for future generations. But there is one Senate desk unlike any of the others, and you wouldn't know by looking at it. Next to the eastern door to the Senate chamber, the first desk on the right, in the last row of desks, they call it the candy desk. It all began on the Republican side of the Senate in 1968 when Senator George Murphy of California, who had an insatiable appetite for candy, started stocking his desk full of sweets that he would often share with his fellow senators. 
The tradition has continued ever since and has even become a point of pride for the select few who preside over the candy desk. Senators John McCain and Rick Santorum have both sat in the coveted desk. The current and 16th tenant of the candy desk is Republican Senator from Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey. Since Hershey's chocolate is based in Pennsylvania, Senator Toomey gladly shares candy from his home state. Well, I am happy to be carrying on a great Senate tradition. It's the tradition of the Senate candy desk. For 50 years now, one desk on the Republican side of the aisle, the first desk that senators pass as they walk into the chamber, has been the official candy desk. And there's no state that should occupy this desk more than Pennsylvania because we are America's leading confectioner. We have more candy companies than any other state. We have 10,000 people working in this industry, and it's just a terrific industry, and I happen to really like Three Musketeer bars, so I'm delighted to play this role. Sugar. Oh, honey, honey. Now, the strange thing is, according to Senate ethics rules, Senator Toomey and anyone who bears the responsibility as keeper of the candy desk is required to place only candy that originates from their home state into said candy desk. You see, every candy company in the world would love to have their candy inside the Senate candy desk. Think of it as a form of lobbying, because that's exactly what it is. Now, you might think that keeping a desk full of candy wouldn't be this complicated. But the rule states that senators are not allowed to accept donations of more than $100 per year. The loophole is that this rule does not apply if the donations are manufactured in that senator's home state. Now get this. If you wanted to add your brand of candy to the already existing pool of U.S. Senate Candy Desk Candy, your company and all the other companies that want to donate must first be represented by the National Confectioners Association. The trade organization that advances, protects, and promotes chocolate, candy, gum, and mints, and the companies that make up the $35 billion U.S. confectionery industry. The Democrats have also had a candy desk since at least 1985, a roll top located on the front wall belonging to the United States Senate Democratic Conference Secretary Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, is also filled with sweets. However, the Democrats manage their candy desk on the honor system. Not to get all political, but it's interesting to see the way each side of the aisle chooses to distribute candy differently. On the right, candy companies pay lobbyists to help get their sweet sugary product into the gaping maws of the Senate body. On the left, it's a communal dish where people can pay as they wish. On the right, they find loopholes around ethics rules in order to maximize the quantity and quality of candy that makes it into the desk. On the left, the most popular candy was the plain old Hershey's Kiss. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Hershey's Kisses are one of the most popular brands of candies in the U.S. with more than 60 million produced each day at the company's two factories. The Hershey Company ships roughly 100 pounds of chocolate and other candy four times a year to fill the candy desk. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great story, Jesse. I know a lot about Congress and American history. I did not know anything about the candy desk, and I feel like a really terrible boss. <laughs> and so he did a quick poll. The Our American Stories candy desk will be stocked with, well, Sour Patch Kids for Faith, Jelly Bellies for Greg, 
peanut butter M&Ms for Stan, huh? Skittles for Jesse. Good and plenty for me. Well, for my wife, when she comes in occasionally, some Snickers, the little baby Snickers. And for Reagan, my beautiful daughter, Kit Kats. And of course, Alex, well, he's not here. This is Our American Stories. The story of the candy desk. our American stories and we tell a lot of joyful ones here on this show but we don't shy away from the tough ones and boy is this a tough one one morning in a suburb of Atlanta two families the Mannings and the Abrahams living just 18 houses apart lost two beloved sons to the synthetic opioid fentanyl an amount equal to two or three grains of salt can kill And over 64,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2016 alone. 20,000 of them came from drugs like fentanyl. That fentanyl number was just 3,000 three years earlier. That's a 540% increase, according to the New York Times. We want to get past the numbers, though, and introduce you to families like the Mannings. They're folks we'd be proud to have as friends and people who never thought they'd lose a son to drugs. You know, we were perfect people to say it wasn't going to happen to our kids. It's not going to happen to my child. You know, look, he was popular. He was an athlete. He was good looking. He had lots of friends. He was homeschooled. He grew up in the church. He was a person that told me at the age of six that he wanted to be a minister. Um... How could that happen to my kid? Her kid, Dustin, was 19 years old when he died. And that's Lisa Manning, who, along with her husband, Greg, is trying to help other parents recognize the drug threat facing us today. As Greg puts it, Whatever a kid wants, they can get within 20 minutes. $20 in 20 minutes, they've got it. $20 in 20 minutes, and they've got it. By the way, we took you into a Senate hearing room a few weeks back. If you didn't catch that, Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we heard from the heads of Customs, ICE, the FBI, all these folks working on interdiction. These drugs are being shipped via the Internet directly to families' homes, and they're using the U.S. Post Office to do it. To better understand what the Mannings have gone through, let's go back to when they met in the early 90s. Each was hanging out with their own friends at the same country bar, and Greg came so very close to missing his one and only chance with Lisa. I spotted him. He was coming back from the bar and asked if I could buy him a drink. And he looked at me and he had like three drinks in his hand. He looked at me like, are you crazy? I already have a drink. So he said no and walked by me. And I'm like, what a jerk. I was walking back over there, looked over there again, and she was still there. And I, I, I kind of was questioning my my move there. I was questioning why I, I did that. And so I, I went back over and talked to her. He looked at me and kind of mouth, do you want to dance? And 
that's kind of where we started. So we danced and been together ever since. Got married in 96, and we wanted to kind of wait a couple years to have kids, but on our honeymoon, I got pregnant. (laughs) So our daughter was born in 97. When she turned a year, we were going to have another one or try, and January of 98, we immediately started trying and got pregnant pretty quick. So um, that was pregnancy with Dustin. He was born in April of 99. He was a feisty child. You know, my daughter was very quiet and she slept a lot. I mean, she was a good napper and Dustin was totally opposite. Soon the Mannings had another boy and the family spent a lot of time together. I decided to homeschool my kids when they were got school age, mainly just because we were very involved in the church and I wanted to have a say of what my kids were going to learn. I wanted to teach them their schooling in a kind of a Christian environment. You know, they learned how to write Bible verses. That was what they first really was they were writing. All of this helped to shape Dustin into a loyal and fearless boy. He was five or six years old and uh, playing ball like they always did. There was a little, uh, little Indian kid that lived next door to us, Neil. Some of the other kids, you know, as they would at that age, would pick on him. And he was my daughter's age, so he was older, and there were some older kids down there. But Dustin went out there. Uh, he was out there playing and told him, hey, you, you know, leave him alone. He's my neighbor, and he's my friend. So uh, that was, you know, at the early age like that, that's that's the kind of thing you think, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm, we're doing something right here. The kids, he's got some good values. But young Dustin struggled with his own emotions. His dad remembers how hard the young man was on himself. As I would drive him to and from the baseball games and the football games, a lot of times, if they didn't turn out well, if he didn't have a good game or something, I knew early on that I couldn't get on him because he was, he was on himself. And so most of the rides back were, hey, don't, you know, don't take it so hard. It's, not, it's, it's a game. You know, if you did your best, you're fine. Don't worry about it. But he always really took it to heart and uh, he was either uh, in as time went on he ended up either being quarterback or uh, linebacker or some type of leadership position on the, on the field and he, he would feel like he'd not only let himself down he let the team down as dustin grew older his dad remembers the boy reaching legend status among friends by getting three dates to homecoming in a single year but hidden from his parents at first Dustin began to use alcohol and drugs. Maybe it was to fit in, maybe to numb his intense emotions. But it started the family on a roller coaster ride that they're now trying to help other families avoid. It was his uh, sophomore year. It was a football game and a bunch of him and his, his football and baseball buddies were all caught drinking at the football game. We were really upset about it and we really wanted the police to take him off and put him in jail just to kind of teach him a lesson. That was kind of what our thought process was. And that was probably when we first started, we saw something, but we didn't think it was anything. We just thought teenagers, you know, drinking. Well, we, we drank as teenagers, so, you know, can't expect them not to. And we just kind of left it at that. We really didn't think anything of it until the following year when we were at a family gathering. It was over the summer. And my husband kind of knew. He just, he felt like Dustin was probably on something. We'd gone to my brother's for a, a little family get-together. He, he was off by himself, and 
he just he didn't look right he wasn't acting right it wasn't what he said or he did he was just you could see in his mannerisms you know your own child and so when we got home and confronted him he he finally came clean and said yeah i've been doing this that and the other which was everything and i knew my my sister had gone to peachford and i knew right off the bat that was a detox center so Lisa and I talked about it and I said, let's, you know, we get, we got to start this process. If he's gone that far that quick. We took him in that night and he was there for about five days and he came out right when school was getting ready to start. So we were thinking, okay, he's good. He's, you know, detoxed. He's not going to do it again. He's learned his lesson. He can start school, start his sophomore year and you know, everything will be great three of us were talking him his dad and myself were talking outside on the front porch one night it might have even been the night before school started he made a comment like I I'm really scared about going to school I remember thinking he's scared because he doesn't want people to talk about him 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 being at Peachford he probably thought the word got out but I think looking back now it was because he knew he he knew he wasn't right just because he was in this Peachford Center for five days it didn't mean that he was fixed but, you know, my husband and I didn't, we didn't think that because no parent wants to think that there's something wrong with their child. I mean, what could be wrong with our child? He was athletic. He was very sociable. He was very outgoing. He was homeschooled. He grew up in the church. He was involved heavily in the youth group. You know, what could possibly be wrong with our child? And we hear that from so many addicts and families. Detoxing physically is hard enough. But dealing with the emotions and the insecurities that make addicts want to numb everything with drugs in the first place, boy, that's tough. And throw in the shame, and that's even tougher. And that's the real struggle. Dustin soon went through a second rehab, then a third. The third program was in Louisiana, far from the dealers that Dustin knew. And there, he seemed to find his footing. He got a job, and he was doing landscaping and tree removal, and he was really doing well, and he was working towards getting the GED. He took the little pretest that they gave him, and when he went to get the results, the lady said, the only thing you have to take is math, because you've tested out of everything. And she's like, I've never had it. I've never seen a kid do that. So that was kind of a feather in his hat, because he felt like he was really, he was smart, because he never felt smart. Even though I knew he was smart, and his dad knew he was smart, he never felt smart. And he loved Louisiana. He said, I, I would think I want to stay here. I want to, you know, make a living here. And about two weeks after we left, they had a really bad storm, and it flooded Louisiana. And the treatment center that he was living at got flooded. School he was supposed to take his test got flooded. So the test was postponed until further notice. Well, that just destroyed Dustin. He was like, every time he felt like he was getting a couple steps forward, it felt like he took 10 steps backward each time. And when we come back, more of the story of Dustin Manning, his mom and dad, Greg and Lisa, and so many families struggling with this epidemic. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue with the story of the Manning family in our continuing series called American Carnage, the Opioid Crisis in America. Dustin had been doing well at that rehab in Louisiana, away from home, away from all the familiar drug dealers, the familiar habits. But a storm flooded everything and turned Dustin's world upside down all over again. One of the guys he was in treatment with left the treatment center and went down to New Orleans and tried to commit suicide. He jumped off a parking deck and pretty much broke every bone in his body but didn't kill him because he hit a branch on the way down. So when Dustin heard this, that made him spiral down even more. And one of the guys he was in treatment center with here in Georgia, he found out did kill himself. He shot himself. So all this stuff was happening to Dustin within a three-week period. And he just, he couldn't take it. He um, decided he was going to just leave and come home and try to figure his life out. So he left Louisiana, found bus tickets and slept in bus stations. And I kept in contact with him that whole night that he was making his way back here. People were offering him dime bags at the bus stations. And he said, Mommy, because I didn't want it, because I don't want to go back into drugs. I just, I want to... I want to get my life right. And so I was proud of him because he could have easily relapsed on that trip back home. And he didn't. I want to get my life right, young Dustin said. And anyone who's had anyone in the family struggle with drug addiction knows these words. Once home, Dustin seemed to find a solid footing at first. He was looking for a job. He was going to work on getting his GED. I mean, he was, he was headed in the right direction. And then September 14th, his dog died, and suddenly um, that sent him kind of in a spiral downward again. And two days later, he told us both that he can't be here. He has to leave. He has to hit rock bottom. And he walked out. We didn't know where he was. We We tried calling him. We tried people, getting people from the treatment center that we knew he was close with, both in Louisiana and here, to contact him. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't pick up his phone. Of course, our biggest fear was he's going he's gonna to die. And Saturday morning, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who asked if I heard from Dustin. And I said, no, I don't know where he is. And she said, well, he's down the street from us. And he's in the backyard smoking pot. So I asked her for the address, and she gave it to me. And I called the cops, and I told them, I said, I want to send a report of some, of some kids smoking pot in the backyard. And so she took down the number, and... And she said, you know, do you know these people? And I said, one of them's my son. I said, he's been gone since last night. And she said, are you putting, are you filing a missing persons report? And I said, no, because I know where he is. I just want the police officer to go find him. And if he's got something on him, I said, I want him arrested. So he can't hurt himself and nothing can hurt him. And sure enough, about two hours later, the police called me and said, uh, you know, your son's here and I can bring him in and have him, you know, go to jail or you can come get him. And I said, nope. I said, take him in. I said, I I think he's safer there. That was Saturday. He got arrested. We went to see him on Tuesday and he told us he was on Xanax. He was on acid. He was on uh, meth because meth was his drug of choice. He had done every single drug that night within a 23 hour period, except for heroin. He hadn't gotten into heroin yet. I remember him telling me he didn't want to do heroin because he was afraid he'd die. But he was okay to do everything else. He said that he wanted to get back into treatment. 
and he did phenomenally well. He kept getting sponsors. He was becoming a leader. He was counseling and leading the new guys that were coming in. He was doing great, and he uh, came home for Thanksgiving, and we had the best time we've had in a couple years. He got a job in January and met the girl that he loved at this job, and um, he decided to get a tattoo, and that was kind of against the rules at this treatment center. They found out about it. He got in trouble, and he decided that he didn't want to be in that treatment center, that he was doing really well, and he felt like he could make it on his own. So he asked to leave the treatment center, and he came home, and we let him come home um, with a lot of stipulations. We would be given a random drug test, and... Um, you know, we would we would work with him to get his GED and get his license, but he had to follow our rules, and he was he was okay with that. He said, "Mom, I know I'm in a better place. I don't want to do drugs. I know I'm doing good." He said, "I just I'm ready to to do better." And so he, uh, you know, it's this addiction. Um, it it gets the best of him, and he just he had a hard time coping with anything that life threw him. I don't know what got him back into getting the drugs again, but he discovered heroin, and um, he just he just asked for a little bit of meth to take the edge off. And apparently, the guy he usually gives him the meth said, "I don't have meth, but I have something else," and didn't tell him it was heroin. Dustin didn't ask. Apparently, um, Dustin tried it, and it was heroin, and he loved it. And you know, addicts always say you're trying to get that initial high. Every time you try something new, it's because you're trying to find that very first high that you got years ago. Because we were drug testing him randomly, he cleaned up and got his GED and got it on May 20th. That was the last test he took and passed it. And so now he's back to where he's feeling like he can accomplish something. And we started talking about college and how he wanted to get into remodeling again and maybe take some... Um, trade classes, maybe electrician, maybe plumbing, just whatever. I remember the day he got his GED scores, he came into my room and he goes, Mom, I just, I don't know what to do now. And I said, well, you don't really have to do anything, you know. I said, you're, all, your, all your classmates at school are graduating next Friday, the 26th. So you're graduating before they did, technically. I said, and this is the goal you always wanted, they're probably going to take the summer off before they do do something. I said, so why don't you do the same thing? I said, and he was just, for the first time, I saw peace in his face and joy and happiness. He was um, just that Saturday before he had gone to prom with his with his girlfriend, who he told that night at prom that he loved her, and she reciprocated, and they were planning a future together. She was going to UGA in the fall, and... He was planning on visiting her and doing whatever he decided to do. He was going to make sure he was with her. And he was getting a life going. He 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 was putting all that drug stuff behind him. And May 26th came and took his life. And, well, you can't catch a tougher moment on tape. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this really sad story. Our biggest fear was he's going to die. Lisa Manning had said, 
Dustin had a hard time coping with anything tough life threw at him. This is Our American Stories. Dustin's story continues. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to our series called American Carnage, The Opioid Crisis in America. And if you have a story, please share it with us. We've done this with final thoughts. They're tough, but I think when you share it, you help not just yourself, not just your family, not just your community, but anyone in earshot of this show will feel a little bit less alone. And if we can do anything like that here, we're happy to do it. More on the Manning story after these messages. continue with our story about the Manning family and their struggle with addiction and opioid addiction. We just heard from Lisa about her son Destin's progress in fighting that addiction. He had a job. He was in love. And he'd earned his GED a few days before his classmates were graduating from high school. But on the same Friday as the high school graduation, Dustin died of an overdose. We asked Lisa and Greg what happened in the days leading up to this. Was Dustin suicidal? No, no, I know, I know for a fact he wasn't. The Tuesday before he died, he'd stayed home from work because he was getting sick. And he was sitting out on the steps into the garage. And we, we were just talking in the garage. He had missed his meeting that he usually goes to on Tuesday nights because he'd been sick. And I asked him, how do you feel about not going to the meeting? He goes, well, I hate that I didn't go. He goes, but I knew I, I couldn't physically make it. And I said, why don't they have one of those meetings here in Gwinnett County? And he said, I don't know. He goes, but that's kind of my goal. He goes, I think I want to start one of these meetings here in Gwinnett County. And I said, well, how do you start something like that? And he said, I don't know. He said, I know you have to be cleaned for at least a year. And I said, well, Dustin, you were clean for six months. So you were halfway there. You can do a year. It's You can do that. He goes, I know I can, Mom. He said, I, I have no doubt that I can. He said, I know it's going to be hard, but I, I'm, I'm going to do it. The, um, the night before he died, Dustin had called his girlfriend, and she told me they talked to 1.30 that morning. So we know it was after 1.30 when he died. And the weird thing is at 1.41 in the morning, I woke up from a deep sleep 
and I was just very anxious and I restless and I couldn't go back to sleep. Eventually I did. I didn't didn't go downstairs or anything and I kind of wish now I had, but um, I have a feeling that was the moment that he died because I woke up and I couldn't go back to sleep. I get up to go to the gym every morning. I get up at 4.30 and I usually at the gym by 5. I did the same thing that Friday morning and I always look at Dustin's room that he stayed in was downstairs, right by the stairs. And I always look at that door um, every morning when I would come down, I'd always look at it. And I still look at it. I just, you know, having that image of my son not being alive in that room that morning. But I went to the gym, obviously not knowing. I get a phone call from Greg. You know, I was in a good mood. I was finishing my workout, and I answered it. I said, hey, and he, all I hear him say on the other end of the line is, oh, my God, oh, my God. Uh, I came I came down, and uh, I opened the door. And, well, I thought he was sitting on the edge of his bed. He looked like he was tying his shoe. Uh, I said his name, and I knew, because yeah, he didn't respond, but I knew. Um, and I grabbed him. And as soon as I grabbed him, I knew he was he was cold. And I I set him back, and I I I looked for any sign of life that he had. And only the first thing that popped in my mind was you know it was the uh, overdose. So I, I I couldn't remember where the Narcan kits were, so I called Lisa. He said, "Where's the Narcan?" And I'm like, "Greg, what's wrong?" And he goes, "Just where's the Narcan? Where's the Narcan?" And the Narcan is, is the drug that they use to offset opioids. It only works right after, you know, the, the ingestion. It doesn't work hours later, which, we did, of course, we didn't know how long Dustin had been out. But um, so Greg's yelling at me, where's the Narcan with the Narcan? And I told him where it was. And all he said was, call 911. I ended up being behind the ambulance that was that was um, going to our address and so I followed them in and I pulled into the garage and I remember just thinking you know dear God please let this be a nightmare Um, and I remember thinking I hope my son's dressed (laughs) because I know he normally you know either will sleep in the nude or sleep in his boxers and I just I was my first thought was I don't want him to be you know exposed I walked into the room and Greg was there and he was just kind of looking at Dustin and he turned and looked at me with and the look on his face I knew and I went over and I touched Dustin and he was cold. So I knew, I already knew he was dead. And um, I just remember looking at him and he had his, my name was tattooed over his chest. Time stopped right then. It was, I can remember the way the covers wrinkled but you remember every every detail of it and it's it's to the point to where you try not to remember it but you want to let somebody else know that you don't want to go through this and when we find out what our son died from, it was the fentanyl.
And that's grief, folks. That's as raw as it gets. And fentanyl is a synthetic opioid originally invented for extreme pain cases that illegal drug dealers now make and mix into street drugs. This stuff, well, it's 50 times more powerful than heroin. And it has turned dabbling in drugs into Russian roulette because such a tiny amount can kill. You know, kids growing up, it, it used to be you'd be able to try pot, whatever else they may have had designs on trying and figure out for themselves, hey, this isn't for me. I don't want to do it. And uh, now with the uh, introduction of fentanyl being made in the garage by some drug dealer who could care less what that scale reads or what dosage he's putting out there, he's it, it comes in at, at a such an economical point for them that they'll just get more. They don't care if they put a little extra in one or not. It's it's the cheapest thing out there for them. So they're mixing this stuff up in ways that one that'll that'll be great, the next one not do anything, they'll try another one and, and that's the last one they get. What would be two or three grains of salt, which will kill a 180 pound human being in 20 seconds and that's what's being produced out there. They'll make it look like your prescription Oxycontin, your prescription uh, Xanax uh, that's being taken or being uh, provided by your local pharmacist. And if you're a mom or dad and all you can do is, is let your kid know that's, you cannot take anything that is not being provided or prescribed from, from anyone but their doctor because they are the only ones that if you go to your local pharmacy, you know where it came from. Otherwise, whoever up the street or your who you think your buddy is in the high school, you have no idea. He may have said he got it from home, but he may have gotten it from the guy next door that said he got it from home. And it came from the two, guy two neighborhoods over that's making the stuff in his garage that he's bought a pill press on eBay. Losing Dustin to this unintentional overdose has motivated the Mannings to reach out to as many parents and children as they can. That's part of how we make sure that Dustin's death was not for nothing, that, that it might save another person's life, that whatever he went through might help some child or young, young man or young woman along the way find their way or uh, not become a statistic. But the only way you can do that is through opening up and dialogue and, and let it be known that it, this is a a nationwide, if not a universal problem. Our kids are much more uh, educated, be it cell phones or the Internet now, of, of what they can do. And, and, and they'll research it. They'll figure out and be a little more investigative about what they can take, but they don't know what they're taking they think they're taking codeine or something that might give them a little bit of a high, and just because it looks like codeine doesn't mean it's codeine or in, or Molly or Xanax. And that's that conversation that has to happen between a mother and a father and the, their child because it's it's at every school in America. There there's not a school immune from this. The kids will be bl- brutally honest with you. They they know. We were talking to. Uh, a mom and her son, and her son grew up with Dustin. Uh, we were talking about how prevalent, you know, heroin and how easy it was to get. And, you know, 20 minutes and $20 on a smartphone, and you can have 
really whatever you need or you're trying to get, you can have it. His his mom was kind of, I think she thought we were embellishing a little bit on that. And she goes, yeah, I don't think it's as bad at where, where he's at. And I remember he turned around and looked to her. He said, no, mom. He goes, that's about that's about how quick I could get it. And she goes, heroin? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, it's it's probably easier to get than alcohol. And that's true. And for people who think this is a problem that afflicts only poor white rural areas like Appalachia, the Manning story is a wake-up call to parents across America. The steepest rises in synthetic opioid deaths this past year occurred in Delaware, Florida, and Maryland. At current rate, drug overdoses will remain the leading cause of death for Americans under 50, driven primarily by synthetic opioids like fentanyl, Drug overdoses are killing people at a rate faster than at the height of the HIV epidemic. And in the coming weeks, we're going to continue this series. Solutions is what we're going to get at, what works, what doesn't. And we've done this before, folks, in the 80s and 90s. The Manning story, Lisa, Greg, and Dustin. A sad, sad story. Here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 